0: Father, we, we thank you uh, so much for your word. We thank you for this wonderful little book. And it is our prayer today, Lord, that our hearts would be soft, be humble, and be ready to receive from your word. We pray, Lord, that we might see the heart of the gospel here in this book. We pray that you might transform us by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word today. And above all else, Lord, we pray that you will be glorified. Amen. Amen. So we're picking up in this book in verse 17 of Philemon. It's all very weird having these few little books in the Bible where they have to give a chapter. There is the one chapter in Obadiah and Third John and here in Philemon. So it's verse 17 and Thus far, just by background, what we've seen is, um, we'll talk some more of the details in a moment, but Paul, uh, at the same time that the Ephesian letter was sent and, as a circular around the churches of Asia Minor, he wrote a specific letter to the church at Colossae. And the church at Colossae had some false, a false teacher who was coming in and affecting, or, or potentially affecting them, and, uh, so he wrote a letter to warn that church and then in addition he wrote a personal letter to an individual attending that church at Colossae which almost certainly went out at the same time and the letter was written to a guy called Philemon and Philemon is someone who uh, was a wealthy enough man to have a couple of slaves slash servants as we've said multiple times they wouldn't have been slaves in a sense of forcibly taken these are people who with no welfare state would have had no option but to sell themselves into slavery and with Philemon they were fortunate they found a master who was a godly man and one of the slaves was called Archippus and Archippus uh, was a believer And Philemon and his, uh, presumably we think his wife, Apphia, would attend the church at Colossae and would take Archippus and another slave called Onesimus to the church. And Onesimus wasn't a believer. He wasn't a believer. Philemon also had church in his own house. Uh, Not totally dissimilar perhaps to how we have home groups in churches today. And he was clearly a man who was both godly and respected within the Colossian church. And then what happened at some point is that this this slave Onesimus, who was an unbeliever, ran away. I'm going to talk in more detail in a moment about the likelihood of him being a thief as well. But I am certainly convinced, as I'll argue in a moment, that he stole from Onesimus when he ran away. And so he not only left... He also left with with some of Philemon's belongings and, you know, presumably he had no income of his own, so he would have needed to have done so. And he left and he fled and he ran away and he ran away to the grand city of Rome. And there he was in Rome and he bumps into who else but the Apostle Paul. Just the most amazing uh, providential meeting that Paul, who knew the church at Colossae, who knew Philemon, and perhaps had even met Onesimus, that Paul met him in Rome. How they met, we don't know. We're not privy to that. Paul was under house arrest, and yet Onesimus still managed to meet him. God was obviously doing some amazing work. And Onesimus, who had been in the home of a godly man, a godly man who I've already argued probably had the gift of evangelism, that He was never saved there, and yet he goes to Rome running away in his sin and is confronted by the Apostle Paul and is confronted by Christ and believes on Christ and receives the gospel and is saved. And now, when Paul sends Ephesians, when he sends Colossians, and when he sends this letter to Philemon, he sends the letters back with Onesimus himself. Onesimus goes back... And probably with a fair degree of fear, and Paul sends his recommendations of grace to Philemon. And it's really now in verse 17 we come to the very heart of the letter. And this is, um, this is building up from verse 9 already. We've seen him say, look, Paul said to Philemon, look, I'm, I'm able to command you. I'm an apostle. I can tell you to do this and I can tell you to do that. I'm not going to do that, though. I'm going to appeal to you because I know the kind of guy you are. And this is the appeal that he was speaking of, more specifically spoken in verse 17 and following. So here we are with the appeal. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. So, in other words, if you consider me to be your partner in the faith, if here I am, and we work alongside one another, I'm working for Christ, and you're working for Christ, and here we are on the same team. If that's how you view me, I want you to view Anesimus the same way. Now, let's put aside for a moment the partnership which is clearly contextually partnership in the gospel. It's talking about the shared gospel ministry. Let's put aside the gospel. Let's put aside Christianity, their faith, the cross. Let's put aside all aspects of our religious faith and let's just look at the circumstances. Onesimus is a slave and according to law he has obligations. Now you may think today that's not fair, but it's not like slavery was in recent centuries in this country. The closest thing we have today would be somebody being in the army and running away from the army, which is also still illegal in this country today, I believe, under certain circumstances. So rather than than it being something that's totally, oh, that's weird, they did that then, we've got something very similar in this country today. Somebody commits themselves to the army, and then they they, they change their mind and they run away, and that is a crime. And it was very similar. Onesimus was run away, he committed a crime. Not only did he run away, as I'll argue in a minute, he ran away with some belongings of Philemon. And regardless of how much he took with him, Philemon was providing food, lodging, a home, for Onesimus and he was, that would have cost him and why would he do that? He would do that because, not because the goodness of his heart per se, but because there were things to be done. Now Onesimus is gone and that kind of leaves Philemon in the lurch. Now if he's a relatively wealthy person, if he could afford two slaves, he obviously was a businessman of some sort. He had things that he was doing and these guys would help him do those things. And now there's no one to do them. Now imagine there you are, you're a boss at a place of work and there you are and you've got, a, you've got however many employees. Let's say you're running a restaurant. You've got maybe 10 people working behind in the kitchens, cooking, washing, 10 waiters and waitresses and staff, taking, welcoming people at the door, bringing people their meals, 20 members of staff. And then what happens suddenly if, one day, without warning, only 10 of them turn up? You're messed up! You've got a problem! He suddenly lost half his workforce. That would have cost him. And Onesimus fled, went away, it affected him financially, it affected him financially and the stealing from him, but here's the thing most of all. Here is a guy who was not just an employee. He was part of the household, he lived in the home, he went to church with them. We know that because when we, when we studied Colossians, the Colossian, the Colossian church were told about Anesimus returning. They knew him, they knew who he was. He must have at least on occasion been there. It seems quite likely that the head of the household, Philemon, would have said, hey you're in my household, you come to church with me. So I think that the greatest loss would have been the betrayal the breaking of his heart, the him reaching out to him, him, him you know, wanting the best for, for, uh, for Onesimus, and Onesimus turning his heels and going. And with all of that done, for him now to come back, there could have been resentment. There could have been bitterness. There could have been anger. What Onesimus did to Philemon was significant, and it was serious, and it affected him greatly. Nesimus had been really nasty, had done a lot of bad, and Philemon may not have had good feelings towards him. Now, with all of that in mind, look at what Paul says again. Receive him as, in the same way as you would receive me. Paul comes to visit Philemon. Hey Philemon, you've got a visitor. Not an elder from the church, not someone who's a friend of yours, not just a visitor from another land, not just a family member, but the Apostle Paul has come to see you. That's exciting, right? That's a big deal. How's he going to greet him? Oh, Paul! It's so good to see you. He would. His wife Atthia, she'd have had food out ready and stuff. The, the you know Archippus would have had kind of food and brought some stuff out. He would have been greeted like some sort of hero. He would have been given a warm embrace, a kiss, and he would have been given the best room, and he would have been looked after, and there would have been this wonderful reception for Paul. And Paul says. Now you imagine that, Philemon. You imagine how you would receive me. I want you to do that for an Anesimus. That is quite a statement. And the explanation of it starts to become clearer with a very carefully worded verse in verse 18 that Paul was not oblivious to. He knew exactly what he was saying, exactly the picture he was painting, and verse 18 is the very heart of the book of Philemon. Verse 18, I believe, is why Philemon, for whom this was a personal note, at some point made this public for the rest of the church, because of verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, Well, duh, yeah, we've established that. That's not a has he, that's a since he has, we know that he has. Or owes you anything. Now, here's where we have the implication of theft. Some people will say, well, it's not stated clearly that he did steal, and the argument is, for those who say he didn't steal, that if he had stolen, Paul would have said it clearly. I argue against that in three ways, just quickly in passing. Firstly, he says, um, if he has wronged you at all or owes anything. Well, has he wronged you? Well, yes, he has wronged you. So does he owe you? Well, yes, he does owe you. The two go in parallel. So if he's wronged you, he owes you. So it does imply that he owes him. It does imply that there has been theft. Secondly, there will be this argument um, that... uh, because there was a low reputation of slaves in that region that if, if there was this this theft that there would be stated clearly this this slave has stolen from you but I would argue the opposite I would say that the nature of Paul and his heart the nature of Philemon and their heart would not make a big deal of this would be playing it down rather than playing it up in the whole of this letter Paul has been playing down the sin, not negating it in any way, shape, or form, but simply not trying to overly draw attention. He's trying to create a, a situation of forgiveness, not one of bitterness. So I would say he would argue uh, that would argue the other way. And thirdly, Onesimus didn't have any savings. He couldn't just, you know, go to the local ATM and take some money out or anything like that. He had nothing. He was a slave. He had nothing, which is why he was in slavery. So he would have needed something to have been able to to have made the journey. So undoubtedly, practically, he would have almost certainly had to have stolen something. So he has wronged him, and he does owe him, and he would have stolen. And Paul says, quite simply, charge that to my account. Onesimus now owes you. We're not going to brush aside the fact that Onesimus owes you. You've lost out financially. And he is responsible for that. He took things from you and he needs to repay them. But he presumably used those things to get to Rome. He's been in Rome and now he's met with Paul and Paul sent him back again because there was a legal responsibility as we talked about last time. And Anesimus clearly has no way to repay him. He can't just go out and get a job, he's a slave. He has to go back to where he's supposed to be legally. So Paul says, I will pay on his behalf. Now, you've not got to be a Christian for very long and you've not got to be a rocket scientist to see what Paul's doing here. Paul is pointing to the cross. Paul is saying, look, you and I, we've been forgiven greatly by God. We committed all of these sins and we were unable to pay the debt for our sin. And so what happened was, is that God himself looked at us, looked at me and looked at you. And he saw all of our sin, our sinful state that we were born into. The sins that we've committed throughout our lives. The things that we've done that we shouldn't have done and the things that we should have done that we haven't done. The thoughts and the words. The things that no one else knows about. The things done in secret and in private. He sees it all and he looks upon us and he says, charge it to my account. And God himself paid the price. God the Son came as a man in human flesh so that he could die on a cross and with his righteous blood pay the price for our sins. Charge it to my account. That's the gospel right there. And firstly... It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, is it not? But I don't think that's the main point. The main point is not the gospel. Remember, I don't think Paul is writing this letter to be taught in churches. Ephesians definitely was. It was a letter that was a circular letter going around the churches of Asia Minor. And even then, he says to the the Colossian church, you know, when you get that letter from Laodicea, which as I argued in Ephesians, I think was... um, was the, uh, rather when I talk Colossians, was the Ephesian letter. He says, also send them your letter. That false teaching coming to you may end up with them, so they should read that as well. So he anticipated Ephesians being read in the churches. He anticipated Colossians being read, not just at Colossi, but at other churches. There's no indication that this was anything other than a personal letter. Philemon is a Christian. He knows the gospel. Paul isn't trying to save Philemon. So the the gospel here, hidden in this, is not the end goal of what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying goes beyond that. He knows the connection. He knows that Philemon will see the connection. And what he's saying is this. He says, look, just as God has forgiven you for your sins, that's the basis for you forgiving Philemon his sin. Anesimus, his sins. Anesimus can't pay you back, but then you could never pay God back either. And yet here you are justified and forgiven. Therefore, it is natural. It is normal. It is how it should be. I don't have to tell you to do this. I don't have to order you to do this. This is as natural for a Christian as breathing is to a human. That's his point. That you would forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, with regards to this, I just want to turn briefly, and you can turn there with me if you wish, to Matthew chapter 18. Now, Matthew 18, in many Christians' minds, they're like, you know, those who've remembered certain passages of Scripture or know their way around the Bible. Matthew 18, they're like, I know that. Where's Matthew 18? That's the passage that teaches church discipline. And yes and no, to a degree it does. And it is there. There is a passage that that affects that there. And it talks about if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him your fault. And if, if someone does sin against you, we're not to... Uh, Harbour a grudge or bitterness if we can't let it go if it's too big a deal and it needs to be dealt with We have a responsibility on us to go and confront over that sin You can't be expecting people to guess that you're offended that they've they've sinned against you You need to go and tell them that they sinned against you And hopefully that can be resolved individually if that sin is not resolved then other people get involved and eventually it may go before the church Um, and Ultimately, if a person is in their sin to such a degree that they don't, um, to such a degree that they're not, they need to just, we're not, we're not sure of their salvation, then they need to hear the gospel. And uh, let him, it says in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That doesn't mean treat them like dirt, which some people seem to interpret it to mean. It means treat them like someone who isn't saved. So preach the gospel to them and treat them well. Let your speech be seasoned with salt, as Paul said in Colossians 4. But anywho, my point is not that passage. Everyone seems to, and again, we take these passages and we isolate them and we forget the flow. And, and the flow is that after this passage, immediately Paul, uh, sorry, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Uh, In verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, look, if someone comes to me and they've sinned and they've committed a sin and then they sin again and they sin again and then they sin again and they sin... I mean, how long do I have to keep doing this? And, guys, this is because sin hurts. Just like with Philemon... Anesimus' sin hurt him. This is real. If someone sins against you, and you say, you know, you've sinned, I'm sorry I've sinned. Okay. And then they go and do it again. And then they do it again. And they do it again. And they do it again. I mean, how long does this have to go on? And so Jesus answers with a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven... Oh, first of all, he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is, you know, we know that, that well. He's not saying keep track when you get to 70 times seven, which is your 490, then you're done. What he's saying is he's saying the seven that, that, that is spoken of as being complete, the seven that the Pharisees might do, is totally insufficient. You're missing the point. You've got to just up it and up it and up it and up it. And, and it's not a literal 490. The answer really is in the parable that, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, obviously we don't do um, our finances in talents today. We're more familiar with dollars and cents. So we, we, we often miss the point of this passage. But this, this story, like many of Jesus' stories, is humorous to a degree. Not in its totality, not like it ends with a, with a happy ending, but it, it is humorous in part. Because what's happening here is the king is trying to settle his accounts. Now, what what does that mean, to, to, to settle? Well, to settle means for someone who owes you something to pay it. If you owe a debt and you settle that debt, I owe you $10, I pay you $10, the debt is settled. That's what settling means. So the king is not going around forgiving people. The king is going around getting people to pay what they owe. Now, in that scenario, someone comes who owes 10,000 talents. Now, we can talk and debate about quite how much that means, but we're looking at millions of dollars. We're looking at decades of work, of wages. We're talking about, you know, if this guy, um, if this guy won the lottery, he might be able to pay, but otherwise he's never going to pay. If he suddenly had somewhere to live, someone to pay for all his food, all his all his costs in living, all his clothes, everything he needed was paid for, and he worked, he would still have to work for decades to be able to pay. In other words this is laughable. It's not like someone coming around and say, oh can you pay me that 10, of the, that ten bucks that you owe me? It's like someone, it's like me coming up to you and saying, hey you, you owe me that ten million you want to pay up today? You are right to settle that? You've got 10 million on you, right? I mean that's more what we're talking about. And so, you know, a few of you are smiling because, oh yeah, like I'm going to pay you 10. Exactly, that's the whole point. The whole point is this guy is, of course, not going to be unable to pay 10 million dollars. And since, verse 25, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. That's interesting. There's a link, is it not? There's a link to Philemon and Onesimus. Here's a man who has debts. He can't pay those debts. That's how people ended up in slavery. He ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. And so he, he and his family now end up being in slavery. What is the state of someone who is in debt to God? There's someone who is in slavery. They're in slavery to sin. And so, a person who is rightly to be enslaved, a person who is rightly in debt, has nothing left to do. He says, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Okay, two things to note here. Firstly, he has got no other option but to beg. Guys, let me just say this in passing. I don't want to lose the flow of the passage here. Let me say this in passing. When we, as Christians... There is something in Christianity at the moment. There's something within... Well, not within evangelical Christianity. There are people leaving evangelical Christianity to what is being termed progressive Christianity. Where all of these sins that these backwards Christians insist on continuing to call sin, well, we can't be doing that. We have got to understand that times have changed and we see things differently and blah, 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 blah. If you go on excusing people's sins they won't get saved. It's when a person sees how bankrupt they are. Listen, if you are a good person, live a good life, if you've been raised in a Christian home, you've gone to church, if your parents are Christians, if you attend churches. None of this matters at all. The debt of sin that you owe to God is laughably ridiculous. You can never pay it off. It's, It's more crazy than than somebody on a laborer's wage paying off millions of dollars of debt. It is ridiculous and you will never do it. And it is only when we see the extent to which we are in debt the hopeless situation that we're in, it's only at that point that we beg for mercy. And if we allow people to believe the lie, that, oh, don't worry about that, that sin's not a big deal, You're not real, it's not really a problem, this isn't an issue, then what we're doing is we're condemning them. We've got to see, we're not, going to, we're not trying to convince people, oh, don't worry, I'm going to worry about that. No, you know what? that sin is a problem. And you know what's more? This one and this one. And even your pride and your selfishness and everything else, that's a problem too. So what do I do? You beg for mercy. You beg for mercy, because that's all you can do. The second thing to note here is this, that this is, this is, this is laugh number two from the comedian Jesus. He's telling this story and the guy says, hey, forgive me, have mercy, have mercy. I'll pay it back eventually. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, whatever, he hasn't, It shows the futility of the man's situation. I mean, it's like, it's, it's pathetic. He's begging for mercy. I'll pay, and he knows he can't pay. And the guy he's begging for knows he can't pay. I wonder if there's much to this in the sense of the Gospel in that, you know, I know people, I know when I came to Christ, I wasn't aware of my sin. I wasn't aware of how badly I was in debt. I'm probably not today. I had no idea that when I was coming to Jesus and saying God, forgive me for my sin, that there were things that I wasn't seeking forgiveness for that I needed to seek forgiveness for. There were things that I thought was okay that I needed to be forgiven for. There's probably things today that I think are okay that I need to be forgiven for. I'm just glad that when Jesus heard me say, forgive me, Lord, when I came to him, he didn't hold my ignorance against me. Same with this guy, isn't it? He can't pay, what a joke. But God doesn't hold that against him. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. God says, done. That, that's, that's the only hope that man had, was for the master just to say, okay, done. This is pointless. It's just done. I'm going I'm to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you that debt. And the charge to my account isn't within this parable, but we know that's how it works for us. Our debt was not brushed aside, it was paid for in full by the blood of Christ. But, uh, but the mercy of God is the point here, that that's the only hope this man had. It's the only hope that we have. But the real point of the story is what follows. He says, he was released, but when that same servant, verse 28, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a day's wage. So basically, this is just a laborer, minimum wage kind of stuff. This, is, this guy is owed less than a hundred bucks. Significantly less. So he's just been forgiven like millions of bucks, millions of dollars forgiven, and he was about, he was on on the verge of having him, his wife, his children, and all of his belongings taken, and taken by another person to live in slavery to that person for the rest of his days, the rest of their days. His kids would be slaves because of his debt, and it's gone. And now, as he walks away, presumably rejoicing at his, at his wonderful situation, he bumps into someone who owes him a hundred bucks. Less than. And seizing him, he began to choke him. What a picture. He began to choke him. saying, pay what you owe. Now, this debt is genuine and the servant falls down. And he pleads, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, notice here, this is the direct parallel. This is exactly what he asked for from the master. Be patient and I'll pay you. But here's the difference. It's a day's wage. With patience, he will pay him. He can pay this debt back. And yet... And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? And and anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, that's the story. There are parallels with the gospel. There are differences with the gospel. A parable doesn't work on every point. It's making a general overall point. In reality, Paul, when he's referencing the Gospel, he says to Philemon, charge my account. In this story, the the master just brushes the debt aside. That's not the Gospel. It's not a a failing of the parable. The parable is just trying to communicate a point. And and also here, notice that the, the slave is forgiven, and then later, he's not forgiven. That's not the Gospel either. So that there's things here that aren't similar. So what is the point of the parable? He tells us, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your own heart. That, my friends, is a problem. I've struggled with this Since I was a child, I've struggled with this before I fully understood the gospel. I think about the time that I got saved, I was already struggling with this. Not from this passage, but from a much more well-known passage. Forgive us our trespasses, as I learned it back in the day, as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's almost as if we're saying in the Lord's Prayer, Hey God, don't forgive us unless we forgive. And is this not a problem? I mean, I've just said to you, in the parable, the slave's forgiven and he's not forgiven. Well, that can't be the truth for a Christian, right? For a Christian, we, we know, we've seen it in Ephesians, we've seen it in Colossians, we've seen it everywhere in our studies. That God says, I've chosen you, I saved you, Here's my Holy Spirit, he's the guarantee that I will complete my work. There's no way for a Christian to be saved and then not be saved. So what on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, I struggle with this. I tell you, I struggle with it. To say that this is not a problem passage, I think we'd be to brush it aside. But let me explain it to you as best I can. God forgives us for every sin that we commit. And that includes lack of forgiveness. When we die, I don't believe any one of us will be completely without lack of forgiveness lack of bitterness in our heart towards everybody, even if we think we are. Our hearts are unbelievably wicked. We'll always have bitterness, unforgiveness, hatred in our hearts in some way, shape, or form. We're humans. So God forgives us. There's no doubt about that. The gospel is clear, and and the security of a believer is clear. So what is the passage saying? I think, what the and just as an aside, that's the golden rule of Bible interpretation. Bible interpretation. You don't take a problem passage, or two, and wipe out the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture because of what a problem passage seems to be saying. You take the clear passages and use those to look at the problem passage. But what it is saying is clearly this. If you're a Christian, forgiveness should be as natural to you, as I said earlier, as breathing is for a human. Do you understand that the point of this story, the reason that there are two laughs in the story, the debt that he owes, and him then saying, give me time, I'll pay you back. That is to show the ridiculousness of our situation and how great our forgiveness is. If we don't forgive, if we refuse to forgive, we are as ridiculous as the man in the story. We are as ridiculous as him. Now there is forgiveness which is where a person will confront someone over their sin, they will confess that sin, they will repent and there will be a reconciliation. But as we've seen in our studies in Ephesians, there are two aspects to this whole picture. There is strict forgiveness, where there is that reconciliation, that admission of guilt. But there is forbearance, which is a forgiving heart, where forgiveness cannot be accomplished. Now we've already seen in this story that, you know, There is a sense in which we say, oh, I'll pay you back. And we're completely unaware of the extent of our debt. I don't think anybody truly repents of their sin because no one's ever truly aware of their sin. So there's always got to be a degree of forbearance. But what do you do in a situation when your Christian brother comes to you and says, look, I think you sinned against me. And that person says, well, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think I sinned. I don't think that was wrong well you can if you wish bring it to other believers there might be a circumstances where that's appropriate where 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 people can can help but sometimes it's just disagreement look at Paul and Barnabas and that whole deal I mean there are times in life where we just disagree but we still have to be forbearing you know what there will be times when someone in this church might sin against someone else in this church and the sin is obvious and great and we can say you know that's wrong but there are times when someone sins against someone else and they're just going to disagree on the story of what happened or on on what's right and what's wrong i don't want any of you to ever leave church for that reason We, we need to have A situation where forgiveness and forbearance is just the heartbeat of our lives. It's what we breathe, it's who we are, it's what we do. There's always a desire to forgive. There's a desire to be reconciled. There's a desire to to, uh, have everything smoothed out. And when it can't be done perfectly, then we'll take the best that we can take. And we won't hold a grudge, and we won't be bitter, and there won't be anger. Why? because we are forgiven and for people who have been forgiven as much as us to not forgive so little and friends whatever has been done to you i don't care who killed your children who did this to you who did that to you whatever I don't even want to suggest things because it might bring things back if it has happened to you, but no matter how serious a crime, turn to the papers, find the worst crimes. Even the people who do that to you, that's nothing compared to the debt that God has forgiven you. You don't get that? You don't believe that? You don't see that? That's because you don't recognize that the rejection of the creator of the universe the rejection of the one who made you, the rejection of the one who came as a man and left aside his majesty simply so he could go to a cross and die in your place for your sins and for you to reject him. You don't think that's a bigger sin. Your problem is perspective. No, every sin committed against us is like less than $100 compared to the millions of dollars that we've been forgiven. It would be like your friend saying, hey, can you loan me 10 bucks? And you say, I'm really tight now, I'm really, I, I, I've not got a lot of money right now, I really can't. And the next day, you win the lottery, and you suddenly have millions of dollars, I'm not, I'm not endorsing playing the lottery by the way, but just hypothetically parable. And then in response to that, you then say, no, I'm still not going to lend you $10. How horrible. How ridiculous. Now, you see, one thing this passage teaches us in Matthew, which, and then we'll come back to Philemon, it it teaches us is this. I don't think it says a Christian can lose their salvation. I don't think it says that. But what I think it does say is this. I believe Christians can commit all kinds of sins and still be Christians. And and I'm dubious of of ministries, and there are many out there, who like to go around, essentially, their ministry seems to be summed up by making Christians doubt their salvation. I'm, I'm not into that kind of ministry at all. But the one sin that we shouldn't be hung up on if we're a Christian... The one sin that we shouldn't struggle with if we're a Christian, the one thing that if we fail miserably and consistently that we really want to look at our salvation, is the sin of unforgiveness. Because, not because... You know, this sin, you know, because in the church today, we've got all sorts of sins, haven't we? I mean, there's sexual sins that the church is always focusing on, and there's this sin that's topical, and there's that sin that we consider bad, and what have you. But let's be frank about it. There's no sin that, that questions the heart of the Gospel more than a lack of forgiveness. There's no sin. It doesn't matter what's been done. It doesn't matter how often it's been done. It doesn't matter how badly it's been done. If we don't have a heart to seek to forgive, to seek to reconcile, if we don't have a heart to forbear, then we don't understand what God's done for us. We just don't get it. And if as Christians we're living harboring bitterness, if Christians as we're living unforgiving, if we're living holding grudges, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't get the gospel. We're we're a living lie. Our whole lives are supposed to be a picture of the grace of God towards us. And what we're doing is saying that we don't believe that. We're calling the gospel a lie. We're lying with our lives. So in Philemon, we can turn back there now, When Paul says, charge it to my account, he's not preaching the gospel. He didn't, he didn't think, you know what, in a few thousand years' time, that verse is going to be a really useful evangelistic message. That wasn't Paul's thinking. He's writing a letter to a personal friend who, who, he, he, who you know, there's no email or texting or, or what have you. He can't just get a feel for the, what this guy is feeling about Onesimus. This guy could be furious with Onesimus. For all he knows, he could be angry. I gave Onesimus so much, I did so much for him, and he stole from me? What, what of mine did he ever not have that he wanted? If, if he asked for something, I gave it to him, and he runs away and he takes my stuff, and that's the thanks he gives me? That could be the case. Paul doesn't know. So Paul writes a personal letter to a friend, and he says, charge it to my account, knowing full well he's referencing the gospel, he's alluding to the gospel, because he's saying to his friend, he's saying exactly what Matthew says, in that, what Matthew's parable says. He's saying, look, you've been forgiven, you forgive. Simple as that. And guys, there is no better way To show that we're Christians by our forgiveness, by our forbearance and there's no better way to ruin our witness than to not to. Paul in verse 19 he says I write this with my own hand I repay it to say nothing of you owing me or even your own self. In other words he says first of all this is me writing this isn't someone claiming to be Paul. Here's my big handwriting. He does that a few times in his letters. There's uh, some interesting studies out there on that. But most of these letters would have been written by professional letter writers. Not that they chose what to write, but sometimes they'd help out and say, what about putting it this way putting it that way? They'd be like secretaries quite involved. That's why Paul says, you know, from Paul and from Timothy when he's writing to Colossians, when he's writing to, uh, to Ephesians. But, uh, and here to Philemon. Timothy would have been helping in that writing. But at this point... Paul, who many people think didn't have great eyesight, who who clearly wasn't a professional writer, he wouldn't have written as clearly, he'd have to have written in big letters. And this is Paul essentially giving a signature. This is Paul saying, this is me saying this, this is my authority. And he says, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Now there's implications here of all sorts. But what Paul is saying is, he's saying, you Philemon, owe me. I don't know, I I think this might be a hint, that Philemon was saved through the ministry of Paul. Perhaps that's how they knew each other. At the very least, Philemon was saved through a ministry that indirectly, in a very short period of time historically, came from Paul. He could trace his salvation lineage back to Paul very quickly. If not directly. Paul came and he did ministry. We know that Paul's typical uh, practice in ministry was um, was for him to work and do tent making and to do his profession so that he wouldn't be a financial burden. He was giving his time freely to this man, to these churches, to these people. And Paul says, look, you owe me but I'm not asking for the debt. Is, we don't do this as Christians. As Christians, you know, you know what? In, out in the world, if somebody says, hey, you know how last week you, you needed help with something, and, and I helped you with it, would you come and help me with this now? It's tit for tat. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do me this favor, I'll do you that favor. That's not how it is in the church. We love, we serve, we forgive. We don't have that. And Paul says, Look, I'm going to, if you want what Onesimus is going to give to you, I'm going to pay it back to you. And you don't, have to, you don't have to say, Oh, well, Paul, you've done this for me. I'll pay it for you anyway. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say Onesimus didn't take him up on that offer. Uh, sorry, Philemon didn't take him up on that offer. How could you get this letter and <laughs> take him up on the offer? It's the gospel. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. I think what he's saying there is simply this. He's saying, I don't want you paying, I I want to pay this because then I'll be blessed. I want a benefit. I imagine Philemon's response is, no, 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 forget it. I'll take the benefit. Guys, that's the kind of argument we should be having in the church. Let me bless you. You, you're in need. Let me meet that need. You need help. Let me help. You've done this. Let me forgive you. Because I want to receive the eternal blessing. Let me do it for you, your way. Let me give you what you want. No, let me give what you want. No, but let me give you what you want because then I'll be blessed for eternity. No, but I want the blessing. Let me do it for you. That's the kind of arguments we should be having. But normally our arguments are me, me, me. No, me, me, me. No, me, me, me. No, me, me, me. No, me, me, me. We should be having you, you, you arguments. Let's do it your way. And Paul then says, practical stuff at the end here, same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. He wants to come. And I think in that, Paul is almost saying a little bit, he's saying, hey, I'm giving you this request, but I might be there in person as well. And that's a little nudge. If this isn't done, Paul will be there to see it not done. And then another little nudge here is Epaphras. We'll talk more about him because we're going to do Philippians next week. And he is a significant person in the first few chapters of Philippians. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, we talked about them to some degree when we did Colossians, so we won't again. I simply want to point out now that what he's saying is he's saying, hey, I've been chatting with these guys, they all know you. People at Colossae are expecting... Philemon to do the right thing. Do you know, if the church at Colossae could see this leader, and they could see him not being willing to forgive, that's going to affect the whole church. You know, And the irony is, is that Philemon might say, well, he did this to me, and he, did, and he might be completely justified legally, but the church would look at that shamefully. They should look at it shamefully. You're not willing to forgive? But, but we thought you were a church leader. We thought you, you're not willing to forgive? What is this? It's shameful. And so these guys are here like, they know and they're aware. And he ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's it, guys. The grace of Christ. He, in, by His grace, Remember the acronym for grace we're all familiar with? God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. That God gives us his blessings. He gives us his riches. And yet we're in debt. How does that happen? Because it's on Christ's account. At Christ's expense. That's what's being done to us. And that then is how we live. We forgive those who treat us like I don't know what words I'm allowed to say. I want to use stronger words, but there's words I probably shouldn't use. I don't like to use grey ones in case I offend people, but badly. People who treat us badly. People who do things they should never have done. People who who hurt us and grieve our souls to the very, very core. Forgive. And when there's no repentance, forbear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we hold a grudge, when we hold anger, we hold bitterness, what we're doing is we're doing God's work. We're saying, I'll deal with that, God. Let me take the wheel. But God says, no, vengeance is mine. He'll deal with it. He'll deal with it. And we now, will finish our study for today. We'll finish the book of Philemon, and we're going to go now to communion immediately. And I don't think that there can be a better segue to communion than that sermon. You know, the Bible talks about if if you're about to make an offering and you know you have a grudge against someone, you go and you put it right before you come. And we don't often talk... I I think some churches talk so much about how your heart's got to be right before you come to communion that we forget that we all come as sinners, and the whole point of communion is that sinners come to, to recognize the forgiveness they receive. But if we aren't forgiving, let's put that right in our hearts right now, before we receive communion. Because God takes that very, very seriously. And what we're coming here to do is to celebrate the fact that people don't pay what they pay, what they should pay. We come here to celebrate the fact that people get let off, that people have fine mercy, the fact that people don't get punished the way that they should legally be punished. We come here to celebrate forgiveness.